0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Microsoft takes four years to fix a nasty bug, bypassing two-factor authentication in the popular Authy app, hijacking a domain with Photoshop, hardware versus software raid revisited, a great batch of your questions, our answers, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 206 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on March 19th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, well, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Well, Over at scaleengine.com, you should Go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is the well-traveled Canadian, our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher,
1: Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks well, for watching.
0: Welcome back, Alan. It's actually good I, I heard from you yesterday on uh, Linux Unplugged, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I uh, I hear we'll get a little uh, Asia BSDCon update later on in the show today, so I'm looking sure. forward to that. Uh, and so Have we're both a l- we're both a little sleepy today, but I feel like <laughs> the show is so big. Like, the news really is, like right in our sweet spot this week. So regardless of the sleepiness, we're going to be able to plow through this with no problem. Uh, And I love it. I love it when we start with a Microsoft story, just the old IT guy in me, something about it just sort of just loves these. So uh, that's where we're going to start this week in our news is Microsoft took four years to get around to fixing something. Right, Alan?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Okay, what happened? It's it's funny. Uh, Basically, it got reported again in a different way. And they were like, oh, Right. Uh, so the way uh, SSL and TLS certificates work, uh, is, it works pretty well, but there are sometimes little problems with it. Uh, the biggest one is that you know, in order to get a, a, a TLS certificate, you have to prove that you own the domain that you're attempting to get a certificate for, right? So when you go to one of the places that sells SSL certificates... And you say, I want a certificate for jupyterbroadcasting.com. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, well, first we need you to prove that you actually own right? so that we don't just give out certificates to anybody. Yeah. Um, well, the usual way this is done is by sending an email to either the address that's listed in the who is, but since most people use domain privacy now and stuff, that one's usually not very useful. Um, or one of a, a small set of what are known as the administrative email addresses. Right? Sure. According to the RFC... You, these addresses are only ever supposed to go to the administrator of the domain, right? There's postmaster, hostmaster, which is for the person that runs the DNS, administrator, and abuse. Uh, now, a lot of times these email addresses don't get checked very often because they're just full of spam. Yeah. Because they are addresses that have to exist on every domain. Uh, but, you know, the idea is that if you can read the email of one of those domains, you're definitely allowed to be running the SSL for that domain. So the problem came when a webmail service, like Hotmail or somebody else, uh, would allow those usernames to be registered and used by someone that isn't the administrator. Uh, So that's exactly what happened uh, with Microsoft's Live.com service. Mm. Uh, So Live.com was fine, but when they launched Live.be for Belgium and Live.fi for Finland, they forgot to put in those protections. Oops. Oops. And how do they so just? It, how do you forget to do something like that, Alan? How
0: how do you possibly
1: seems like that's your job? Yeah, um, basically, you know, you reserve the username on the one domain and then you add more domains and kind of forget or something. I, I'm not entirely sure. Man, that's a mistake. Uh, yes, uh, and so a Finnish man reported to Microsoft a couple of weeks ago that he was able to actually go out and buy a valid HTTPS uh, certificate for live.fi for ten dollars because he had the address hostmaster at Mm. live.fi. And, you know, so you informed Microsoft about it and four to six weeks later, they finally had solved the problem. And so I have a link to an Ars Technica article where, you know, they talk about that and how they suspended the domain or the username and and made him change his email address and so on. Uh, But, you know, now nobody can do that to live.fi. But when the story came out, uh, it reminded someone of a story they had thought of before. And it turns out there's a guy from Belgium uh, who basically found the same thing with live.be four years ago and has an email thread where he emailed Microsoft about it and got an acknowledgement <laughs> that, yes, that's not was supposed to work. Uh-oh. Uh oh. But it's been four years and it wasn't fixed yet. <laughs> Uh, it's actually unclear whether it was fixed at the same time as the .fi, or if they notice it later, or if it's still actually unfixed at this point. Uh, but for at least four years, this guy could have been doing man-in-the-middle attacks on <laughs> yeah. anybody using live.be yeah. at you know, a cafe or something. And you know, what's one of the most popular things to do while sitting in a cafe? Check your email on the Wi-Fi. Sure, of course. And all of your social accounts, too, now. Uh, well, and the best part is, you know, if I can do a man in the middle on your logging into your live.be account, and that's the email account you registered your Twitter with, I can then once I've got your password, I can go in there, change it, uh, or just not know your password and know that you're not going to change it anytime soon. Right? Uh, you know, go in there and and uh, you know what I've wondered about though, Is is uh, so
0: if so if you have the ability to intercept the SSL traffic and you know have a, you could do a man in the middle attack. Then you you know we always go to the coffee shop reference. You know you're at the coffee shop and somebody's gonna you know sit there with their laptop and uh, sniff the traffic. But don't all of us have smartphones that auto log in and update all of our feeds and calendars and email accounts and docs and Twitter and all this in the background constantly? So as soon as your phone connects to a Wi-Fi, even if you don't take it out of your pocket, it starts transmitting these credentials over the air, even if you don't launch a single app. The operating system's doing it at the sync level
1: yeah well yeah your your gmail is going to go in now I think the gmail actually uses a token or something isn't actually logging in but if you have like imap mail set up on your on your phone like i do uh you know if it sees a trusted certificate it's just going to let it happen
0: challenging challenging <clears throat> makes yeah. me want to uh makes me want to just uh uh, not put anything like that on on uh, on a device, or just leave my Wi-Fi off unless I really trust yeah. the network or something like that. But then again, I think about it and it's, I try to balance the trade-off and inconvenience that brings.
1: Yeah. So they have a nice quote here. Uh, After the Finnish man used his address to obtain a TLS certificate for the live.fi domain, mm-hmm. Microsoft warned users it could be used in man-in-the-middle and phishing attacks. To uh, foreclose any chance of abuse, Microsoft advises to install an update that will prevent Internet Explorer from trusting the unauthorized credential. Uh, by leaving similar addresses insecure, similar risks may ex- have existed for years. Right. So just because this Finnish guy found it with uh, at uh, Hostmaster at, someone else could have been doing it with Postmaster at forever. Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, I would imagine there's probably entire divisions in governments that sit there and figure out all these things that people don't know about, and then take advantage of them for years. Yeah, if I were, especially with
1: the less popular than Hotmail type uh, webmail things. Yeah. There's lots of like tiny ones out there where you could probably do the same thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Sure. Sure. Huh. Well, I guess they got it fixed now.
1: Uh, On the BE anyway, or on FI anyway. I don't know if it's actually fixed on live be. Oh. It'd be interesting to find out if live.ca has the same problem as yeah. well. Yeah,
0: yeah. Now you wonder, don't you? <laughs> now you have to start I haven't had a
1: hotmail address since 1999. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. All right. Very good. Uh, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no, that's about it for that one.
0: Okay. Well, uh, I found that to be uh, rather entertaining, Alan. So thanks. Well, for it's kind of
1: important things. for anybody that runs their own uh, email domain make sure you don't give addresses like that out. <laughs> Have
0: you... sure uh, all
1: four of those, uh, you know, look at the RFC, get the list of administrative accounts and make sure those always forward to you. you know, especially if you're doing the, it for a small business or something.
0: Did you take any precautions when you were traveling just this last week?
1: Like, did you do anything um, Wi-Fi-wise or anything like that? or Not especially. Uh, yeah. I was using my hotel's Wi-Fi and the venue Wi-Fi. But actually, mostly what I had was uh, I, at the airport, I rented this little Wi-Fi device or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, it has a SIM card in it, and and I associated with the Wi-Fi access point that was in my pocket. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Uh, and that's a good way to yeah. go because you are not I a switched to data. using uh, I used the hotel's Wi-Fi when it's at the hotel. Sure. Because it was a bit faster because it was Wi-Fi to a wired line instead of over three G and four G. Yeah. Uh, and still a little more reliable. Because I was charging the other thing, so I had it turned off. Um, and, and also, it had a, a limit. It's like if you did more than a gigabyte in three mm. days, it would uh, rate limit you. So I was careful to let my phone overnight on the, wi- the the hotel Wi-Fi. And then I would use the Wi-Fi at the university when I was there because it was faster as well. And, you know, as far uh, as and you and I... the battery so that I would have some battery left on the Wi-Fi device when I went out for dinner and so on.
0: I think one of the things one of the things you can do, uh, really, to have a secure mobile device, if you're going to be connecting to Wi-Fi kind of like that is... You know, have one that's current. Like, you know, you have a Nexus device, so you've got the latest Android builds and the latest patches. Right, although, and stuff. if
1: you're really concerned, your best bet is to set up uh, a VPN client yeah. and wrap all your traffic on your phone. Yeah. So it's going over the Wi Fi, but yeah. it's going encrypted back to your house. Right. Although, that would have killed performance in yeah. Japan going all the way right. back to my house. Oh, but that's if what, it's what. Traveling is. around town or, or around the US, going back to your house to and then proxying up from there is, is not really a big deal.
0: Uh, actually our our, our sponsor, uh, Ting, had a, had a it's a couple of weeks back now, but had a blog post about a couple of different really elegant VPN apps that sort of integrate at the OS level and can forward all traffic or just certain app traffic through the VPN on Android. And so the, uh, Ting Thanks. has a a blog post about that. In fact, why not take a moment and mention Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com right now and you get the TechSnap discount. That's a $25 discount off your first Ting device or if you have a Ting compatible device. And now that they support the CDMA network and GSM network frequencies, there's a lot more devices you can bring over. So check out their blog about that. When you bring over a Ting device, you'll get $25 of service credit. That service credit for me lasted me more than my first month. So my first month switching over was free. So that's an immediate savings. Ting also has an early termination relief program. What's that about? It's an ETF, essentially. You know what those are, right? The ETFs, that's how they get you, like the bigger cell companies that just want to lock you into these contracts because they're, well, you know the duopoly. I don't need to go into it. But they get you with these contracts. They get you with these fees, and they just keep going up. Like I've heard as high as $375 U.S. to cancel a cellular contract. It doesn't even seem like that should be legal. Now, the good news is not all of them are so high, but there's even better news. You can switch to Ting and start saving money right away. And if you take advantage of their ETF program, Ting's gonna help you out. They'll pay a percentage of the cancellation. That's really cool, isn't it? And then you can get started with a no-contract service, only paying for what you use. And Ting only will charge just a flat six dollars for the line. Flat six dollars. That is very straightforward. So you don't want to add another phone, it's six dollars. That's all it is. So if you know you have somebody in the family or you're a small business or a medium-sized business or even a large business, and it's still extremely economical. Uh, I love it. That's why I have three lines right now, paying flat $6. And then it's just my messages and my megabytes and my minutes usage on top of that. And Ting has a great dashboard to manage all of it so I can stay on top of it. And they have no-hold customer service. You can call them at 1-855-TING-FTW anytime between 8 p.m. Or uh, 8 a.m. That's Allen's uh, East Coast time over there. And uh, check out some of their uh, devices on the Ting device page. Like uh, the GSM c- SIM card is now available, and it's at different cuts. You just pop out the one you need, $9 to get the Ting GSM SIM. Put that in something. Maybe an old phone or a gadget you have laying around. and Just get cell service to it and just pay for what you use. It's really straightforward. Uh, also, uh, I just want to mention, I don't know if I've pulled this out on the uh, TechSnap show. They added the, sha- the Sharp uh, Aquios Crystal, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous Android phone. when you get the TechSnap discount, no contract, nor the termination fee, it's unlocked, it's yours, you own that phone. That's really cool. And then you just pay for what you use. So go to techsnap.ting.com to get started. And if you're an iOS user, check out Ting's blog post uh, made yesterday, no, two days ago, Mm -hmm. about how to make calls uh, over Wi-Fi using the Hangouts app for free anywhere in the US. Uh, It's a pretty good, uh, they have a step-by-step guide on how to get that set up. Uh, including uh, uh, a video about it, uh, about the Hangouts app. And then that is a way you can have Ting service and make 100% free calls. Of course, actually, you could do it on any cell service. That's what's so cool about Ting, right? They're going to put that info out there regardless. You could, you could apply it to any carrier. But uh, this is one way that Ting just likes to help out their users. Go to techsnap.ting.com to support the TechSnap show, and a big thanks to Ting for sponsoring TechSnap. Mm-hmm. Okay, Alan. So uh, I, of course, was actually considering trying out this Authy app for a little while. So lo and behold, right here in the news, uh, Alan has an Authy story that is probably going to make me
1: reconsider. Are you going to make me reconsider, Alan? Probably.
0: (laughs) So what is Authy and what's going on?
1: Uh, So Authy, like you said, is kind of a a little um, third-party, an API that third-party sites can use to add two-factor authentication, right? The idea is make it easy so everybody can just add two-factor auth to their site. Uh, and so the way it works is you basically um, do a post poster API saying, hey, send a verification code mm-hmm. to this phone number. Sure. Uh, and then the user types in the code and you send it to the API and be like, hey, is this the right code? Hi. And it says yes or no. Yeah. Uh, and it has an API where the user, or, or a, a UI where the user types in the number. Uh, so... You know, they tried to make it really easy, and maybe they made it a little too easy. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. So when the user is asked for a verification code that is sent to their phone, right, so you get the pop-up, and it's like, type in the code we just sent to your phone, Uh, and you get a text, and you can type in the number, and if you do, you know, it calls the API with the number you just typed in, and if it's right, it says, hey, success equals true, and, uh, you know, the site accepts that as you just uh, got the, you just did the second factor correctly. However, if you just type dot dot slash SMS into the box instead of the number, it'll let you in.
0: Shut (laughs) up. No way.
1: Yeah. The problem is that the third party site sends the request uh, after you type in the number. It's just looking for the key success and if it's set to true. Hmm. Uh, It's not actually checking for anything else. And that's the problem. Gotcha. Uh, Because the input that the user types in you know, supposed to be, you know, the number one, two, three, four, five or whatever, uh, is interpreted in the URL, right? It's it kind of concatenated into the middle of the URL. Uh, the number you enter is fed into the URL. So instead of, you know, API.auty.com slash protected slash JSON slash verify slash the number you typed in slash the ID of the request, uh, what actually happens is it's, you know, apiauthycom slash protected slash json slash verify slash dot dot slash SMS slash the auth ID. Uh-huh. So when the server actually interprets all that in the end, it ends up not calling the verify API, but the SMS API. So that API call just asks Authy to send you a code again. Jeez. So basically, you go to the site, it sends you a code yeah, yeah. by calling the SMS API, and then you're supposed to type in the answer. And for the answer, instead of a number, if you type in dot dot slash SMS, it sends a second code to your phone, but when it sends the code, the response from the API is success equals true. Uh huh. So the app on the other end, on the site you're trying to log into, says, oh, you just typed in the right code. So
0: it's like uh, Rox is saying in the chat room, they named it correctly after all. It, auth- it authenticates you after all. It'll authenticate <laughs> you. It's definitely authy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Lots and lots of opi. Uh, <laughs> Way so, too much opi. <laughs> it seems like a kind of weak design, right? There, there's no kind of token or anything that's going on that you're actually verifying or anything. It was just looking for success equals true. Now, they're like, oh, well, you know, there's another um, token you, you know, in, the, in the correct response to the verify command. Uh, it has success equals true. And then, you know... Um, Token and then it, the value is a string is space verif- or is space valid, but people aren't checking that right because the implementation instructions aren't very specific about that and it it just seems like success equals true shouldn't really be the key that you're using because every API call uh, returns success equals true unless something went wrong, and so it's not really what you should be keying off of, uh, and also their middleware probably shouldn't unescape the URL. Like, so when you type in dot dot slash SMS, it actually shows up to the server as like um, dot dot percent two F SMS, right? Because <laughs> the slash gets encoded so that it won't be ter- interpreted as part of the path. Yeah. But it, somewhere in the middleware in the Auth API, it gets converted back into the actual slash and loses the escaping and actually gets interpreted causing the directory traversal, right? The dot dot slash deleting the verify section out of the URL. Mm. And so... off the middleware shouldn't do that. The clients that implement it should be keying up something else, and the API probably should have a better way than actually doing a string comparison, right? They should have uh, some token or something that you're actually verifying. Mm, Yeah.
0: Hmm.
1: So, yeah, the API is not great, and the implementation is done poorly. Crap. Uh, Because a lot of people just did the implementation themselves, right? It's not like there was a standard library they were using, and so, you know, they just look for the success equals true, and it works. Oh. It just never doesn't work. Right. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. No wonder why it's been such a success. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. But yeah. I don't know. I so uh, the the problem is, <laughs> the the issue is that there is no really good like industry wide two factor. And one of the things Authy will let you do, if my understanding is, I've never used it, but my understanding is, it'll let you combine multiple different. Uh, uh, multi-factor authentication systems like Google's and Microsoft's all in one app. So you just have one app for all of them. And then I guess it cloud syncs Mm -hmm. them somehow. So you could just install that app on your other devices and then log into the app and then you have your your one time. Because one thing that like with Google Authenticator is every device has to be authorized to your Google Authenticator. And so when you get it, if, if you switch devices and don't authorize it, and you only have one device that's authorized and you get rid of that device you're really screwed. Whereas Authy, you would just download the app, install it, and then have all your one, you know. Yeah, but
1: what's stopping someone else from downloading and authoring their phone to authorize me?
0: Well, and what's stopping from somebody from using the password to the Authy app that they use for their Gmail, that they used on eBay, that they used on Gawker? Right, there's that problem, too.
1: Right, there's, yeah. I'd rather be able to log into my Google account and add and remove devices yeah. at my will kind of thing. Yeah. Rather than, but, and I guess that's kind of what the Authy thing is doing, except for, you know, how do you have two-factor authentication on the account that controls yeah. your two-factor authentication? And, and the problem
0: is that, you know, I, I think
1: two-factor authentication is still just
0: a little too complicated for a lot of users.
1: Yeah. They're going really to mess up that, the phone thing. Uh, yeah. It comes down to, you lose that as easy as you lose your password, possibly, and then, yeah. If it's the only way to, re, you know, if the whole point is you can't reset your password without a two-factor token, how do you reset the two-factor token? And if re, if disabling the two-factor token only requires your password, there's no point in having a two-factor token. So one thing I know that... So it gets really complicated.
0: Like with Google Authenticator, I, I know people have run into the problem where they've their phone's been destroyed and they didn't authorize their new one, and, and so they're really stuck because they, they need their two-factor codes to get into their accounts. Uh, I guess some people will... The, like LastPass, for example, will give you a QR code that you just scan with the two-factor with Google's two-factor app, and then it just links it to your account and sets it up. You can print. No, you know, be careful where you store it, but you can
1: print that QR code out. Ah, uh, yeah, as a fallback thing. Yeah,
0: and so I guess some people are doing that, and that's sort of their yeah,
1: fallback. Yeah, but I'm more likely to lose that piece of paper than oh, to yeah, destroy sure. my phone. Yeah, right?
0: me too. And now that I and now that I you know, and also thankfully I have like multiple phones so I, I don't actually ever hit that situation but I have, I have flirted with it closely like I didn't have one of my phones here that had the two factor authentication I was like wow okay I, that was close that was close enough where it made me think about it a little bit so that's yeah. why I was tempted by Authy but eh, it doesn't sound
1: like yeah it seems like the convenience uh, never works of, out a bit of rush in the coding and stuff yeah. and yeah. Oh. you know anybody can write a two factor authentication service it doesn't right. mean it's a good one when it comes to stuff like this it needs to be done the right way Right, and you know I'm not actually trying to say that only Google can do it the right way, because uh, you know in the end I'd rather not trust Google, yeah, but yeah, yeah,
0: they have a they have at least have the, one of the more solid and widespread implementations right now, um,
1: and there's a lot out there butries up and 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 finishes the two factor thing he was working on, oh, yeah, he wrote one for the University of Oslo, <laughs> and they use it, but it's a little too hacky, and he doesn't want to just contributed to FreeBSD in its current state. He wants to make it nicer first. And... uh, It's understandable. Yeah. Well, that's... Yes and no. You know. Uh, Every coder kind of has that problem. It's like, oh, I got this great stuff, but I don't want to open source it because I'm embarrassed by how bad it is. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, if you just give it to us, it'll get better. And if we wait for you, it could be forever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, actually... I don't know. Is it time to get into it already, about HBSDCon?
0: Oh, you want to? Well, why don't we do that? So speaking of doing it right, let's talk about iX systems real quick, and then we'll talk about yeah. H. Asia BSDCon. So, uh, IX Systems, sponsor of the TechNet program, uh, and really the supplier of pretty much all of Scale Engines' hardware. And anytime I need to buy something serious, something done right, something built with really real quality care, powered by those incredible Intel Xeon processors, I go for IX Systems. I know that they have a deep bench of experts. They have great community connections, great hardware partners that they have established long-term connections with because they've been around for a long time, and I know they're not going anywhere. And I know their white glove service is truly going to take care of me. And over on IX, so go to ixsystemscom techsnap Go there. Visit that page. Learn more about IX Systems. It, it not only spo- not, not only does that say thank you for sponsoring the TechNet program to IX, mm-hmm. but it also is a great opportunity for for you to learn sort of how a company that operates at this level organizes their product line and and gets information out there. It's a much better experience than a lot of the other big OEMs you've probably gone with. Uh, so over on their What's New page, they have a post up there about Asia BSD Con. IX Systems, obviously at asia BSDCon, how was it oh, i think
1: i think you can see my ear in that picture
0: i saw oh you know what while you talk i could go, go maybe they they might they might have another one uh uh no they had a great picture of you on um oh chris wrote this post huh they yeah. had a great picture oh yeah that might be your ear that, that's my ear yeah yes. <laughs> they, they had a great sh- picture of you on facebook though i'll go find that while well actually come. no that
1: might be kenmore's ear actually yeah maybe i maybe. forget where i was sitting. Um, the other one, uh, oh, if you look on their What's New page there and yeah. scroll down yeah. to, like, March 9th, yeah. they also have a post about why cost isn't the only thing you can, should consider when you're buying uh, your storage sure. server. Sure. And while iX will most likely be the cheapest place, uh, they're saying it's not the only thing you have to consider. You have to look at performance. Well, you know, uh, a ZFS-powered FreeNAS or TrueNAS is definitely going to outperform your Dell, EMC, NetApp, <laughs> or anything like that. Oh, man. Uh and the other things are like a the support right their support you get from iX is you're talking to someone that actually knows what ZFS is and knows yes. how it works well it uh, deep, deeply you know, knows how it works works in open source and yes. actually does stuff and talks uh, to the hardware versus, the hard drive manufacturers and i mean all of that yeah, was, right and in lsi that makes the controller cards and everything Yeah. versus someone who you know getting uh, a call center outsourced to somewhere and you know you'd be lucky if you could find out what time of day it is yeah absolutely <laughs> um but they also talk about their pre and post sales engineering, you know, actually being able to talk to someone about the hardware and and what your the stuff's going to be uh, you know, before you buy it. If if you call up Dell and want to buy a server, they're like, "Well, do you want this model or that model?" And it's like, "Well, you know, which one of these cards do I want? Oh, well, you are the, the expensive workload. one. <laughs> let me
0: tell you about the workload.
1: And let, yeah, you know. exactly. With iX, you can be like, hey, this is what we're trying to do. This is what we're worried about. You know, the problem being this is how much performance we need at a minimum. And then be like, oh, well, if you need that much minimum performance, you need yeah. at least this much RAM and this much SSD and this much hard drive and so on. Hey, look what I found. There is, uh, there's
0: Alan Jude giving a talk, picture taken uh, by iX Systems. Nice. Posted, there you are in Tokyo.
1: That, that must have been taken by Drew, I'm guessing. I Just bet from it. where... Where the picture's coming from is all, where she I was think, sitting. I
0: think these ones were all there maybe by... Oh, no, that's true. So that's probably not true then. Uh, yeah, that one wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> Unless oh, got no, this a was a great cover.
1: one. Okay, so the guy in the middle there is uh, Daniel Lovsenko or something. I forget okay. his name, his okay. last name, but it's Daniel. And he's new. He's a GSOC student, uh, right? Google, uh, Google Summer of Code. Yeah. And there he is sandwiched between Matt Earns, the co-inventor of ZFS, <laughs> and Kirk McKusick, the inventor of UFS. <laughs> And wow. getting the learning directly piped into his brain. Yeah. Uh, about uh, they were like live debugging something. Because uh, uh, his, yeah, his he looks happy. Summer of Code project from last year was um, implementing the um, C typing framework uh, to, to basically, when you're debugging the kernel, print out the data structures uh, like human readable instead of in like binary, uh, you know, easily tell, all right, this is this struct member and it has this value. And oh, that's a string. And so this is what it actually says and so on. Um, and actually, I think after that conversation, uh, they started doing a port of MDB, the Solaris debugger, from Illumos that Matt Erns works on uh, to FreeBSD. Uh, and that's a project he's working on now that just kind of spontaneously happened in the lounge at AJBSDCon uh, during lunch. That is so neat. <laughs> Oh, lots of eating, of course.
0: Lots There's of the eating. back of my head yeah. as I'm oh, So it's a pretty good crowd, that's, huh?
1: Some of, some of the translations of the food were pretty hilarious. Uh, the one, I don't know, I think somebody had a picture of it, but there was this uh, big platter of, of pork something, right? And the translation of the, the, the Japanese name for it was like, Kachitori of Boston Pork Butt. Oh. <laughs> <was> like, what? <laughs> no, that's not quite it. It sounded good. It was, it was pretty good, actually. Yeah, agree. I bet it was.
0: Yeah, I bet it was.
1: Uh,
0: also, IX Systems has an overview of what's new in TrueNAS 9.3 up on the uh, yeah. What's New page.
1: So go over there. Go to iXsystems.com. There's a video now. coming out that I don't know if it's posted somewhere yet or not, but they have uh, With your face? talking about um, the new stuff for FreeNAS as well. And uh, uh, just a hilarious video about um, why you need a FreeNAS. Uh, I think it mostly went uh, because your daughter is so nice that she decided your laptop looked thirsty and decided to share her apple juice with it. Yeah. There's been that one. There's been that one. And, and wouldn't you rather your files were backed up to your free NAS instead of not when, you know, your, uh, your laptop gets apple juiced, <clears throat> but, you know, they also have that other one on the what's new page. If you go back far enough where it's like, look, what's happens if you have silent corruption of your family photos, if you don't have ZFS, like, you know, one bit gets flipped. Um, in a, in a JPEG, and every pixel after that just goes all wonky. Did I That's think we showed a, that one on a previous episode. Yeah, right?
0: it's always a trauma, Alan. You're, you're traumatizing me right now, Alan. You're traumatizing yes. me. Uh, all right, so uh, we have. Uh, let's move on to our next story. Oh, I actually. So,
1: well, I had yeah. an actual point. Oh, uh, one of the other. The keynote at uh, AGBSDCon was from Robert Ells, who's one of the people that's been working on BSD since it was just BSD before all the projects started. When it was still at the University of uh, Berkeley, he's actually from Australia, and he was one of the ones that brought some of that stuff over to Australia, and and they worked on it. And uh, he gave a, a great talk about how, uh, specifically, you know, ugly code isn't necessarily bad, and you should share it, and we should use it, uh, and then you know, that will cause someone to come up with something better that we can then replace it with. Uh, you know, no, Nothing's worse than no code at all. <laughs> yes. Well
0: put, Alan. That was a good point to make. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, uh, I, well, I, I forgot. Yeah, no, I was, you <laughs> that was the point yeah. I was trying to make. It's the sleep then- deprivation. It happens to both yeah. of us. We're both just a little floaty. It's cool. Uh, all right. So uh, I want to talk about this next story because it's, it could happen to anybody. But of course, when it's got GoDaddy's name in it, it makes headlines. It always makes yeah. headlines. What's going on here?
1: Well, uh, you know, and in particular, this basically the same idea. Uh, we've seen, you know, uh, the Syrian Electronic Army do it to Twitter. Yeah. Or we've seen, yeah. Uh, the Lizard Squad people to do it to people. Uh, And then in a a different one, this is what actually hacked the registrar, which is completely different. Uh, But in this one, it's just some social engineering to take over a domain name. So in this one, it wasn't necessarily uh, something bad happening to someone. It was uh, a reporter got in touch with a security researcher and they arranged for the security researcher to steal the reporter's GoDaddy account. And document the steps he went through and how it happened. Okay, okay. Just All to right. show you that it can be done, but yeah. also in a more controlled environment than, you know, uh, if you remember going through the aftermath of that um, Matt, somebody from, uh, what was that tech journal? Remember he got his iPhone, his uh Yeah, uh, the
0: console? guy that worked for Gawker for a little bit. Gosh, we always forget his name for some yeah, reason. Yeah, Mike something or Matt something. Matthew
1: uh, Aaron, Something. So. No, not Aaron's. That's the ZFS guy. Yeah. Not then <laughs> no. That's the opener guy. Yeah. It's something else. Shower uh, will tell us maybe in a minute or two. And yeah. I'll, I'll kind of uh, it. But uh, yeah, uh, he had the Twitter account at Matt or something like yeah. that. Really short. And yeah. so that was it was a three-letter Twitter account, and that's yeah. why people were after it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's, it's kind of like that, except for this was a more controlled environment and nobody lost all their stuff. So that helps a lot. Anyway. Uh, so through a combination of social engineering, uh, publicly available information and some Photoshop government ID, it allowed the security researcher to take over, uh, the guy's GoDaddy account and all the domains that were inside of it. So just to kind of give you an idea of what you could do if you were able to take over somebody else's account is a, uh, you could inject an attack, uh, into a website. So, you know, if I took over the account for Jupyter Broadcasting, uh, You know, if the website is hosted in that account or whatever, I can, you know, add an iframe to the page or something that will, uh, you know, use a flash exploit against everybody that visits the page. Right. Uh, Or, you know, uh, since it's the DNS control, I could redirect all the email. So now all the emails at JupyterBroadcasting.com go to my mail server. Maybe I forward them to the original uh, Jupyter Broadcasting server after so that they don't notice that all their emails stop coming but this way I get to see all the email. Uh, and then, you know, if so, somebody registered their Twitter account at yeah. something at Yeah, I can go reset the password and, yeah. oh, look, I get the email. Yes, of course. Um, uh, they could also redirect the traffic to their own website, you know, and just steal the traffic. Sure, sure. Or they could buy an SSL certificate for your site either by reissuing the one you've already bought for the site, if you happen to have bought it from GoDaddy and it's in your GoDaddy account, or by using the email intercept thing to intercept, you know, hostmaster at jupiterbroadcasting.com and, and buying the uh, certificate that way. Hmm. Then they can do a man-in-the-middle attack, right? So they change the DNS for you know, jupiterbroadcasting.com to their web server so the user goes over HTTPS to the BAD server, which returns a valid certificate. So they're like, okay, this is the real site. Then the in- connection gets proxied over to the original jup- broadcasting.com. So now Chris goes and logs into the admin area, types in his password. It gets encrypted and goes to the BAD server where they then un- see the password, write it down or whatever, and then they can still send it over to the original server and Chris doesn't realize that anything happened. Right. And now the bad guys have the password and can log in. And do whatever they want on the site, like inject an iframe Whoa. that uses a flash exploit or yeah. exploit yeah. or something else. Oh, sure.
0: I, uh, yeah, I go for a flash. All one.
1: kinds of things. Basically, once you have that, you have everything.
0: Flash ones are my favorite.
1: Yeah. But, you know, this is why it was a big deal when, you know, Twitter's got taken. You know, luckily the bad guys, when they did that, all they did was, uh, you know, break the image to subdomain and stuff they didn't actually uh, manage to steal everybody's password for Twitter because you know that could have resulted in some pretty big accounts getting hacked uh, And would have and, made for a great episode of TechSnap yeah <laughs> uh, but to kind of um, the article has all the details but to kind of give you an, a recap of what social engineering steps they went through yeah first they. uh Got a picture of a random guy to use as the picture of the reporter. It wasn't actually the guy's own picture. So <laughs> it looks pretty cranky proves, in this picture. Uh, yes, although it just this goes to prove that GoDaddy wasn't actually checking the ID necessarily. Oh, right. Uh, or, you know. Maybe they're just using it as a data point or something. Yeah, because, you know, I think
0: about that. When I, I signed up for Mt. Gox, I had to give them my picture ID, and how would they know it's my picture?
1: Yeah. like It's not like you're... Normally when you're using your ID to verify your identity, you're standing there. Yeah. And so they compare the yeah. picture to your yes, face. Yes, 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 But when it's online, they it, don't have something to no, compare to. No, I mean, for me so,
0: specifically, they could go find pictures of me pretty easily. But for yes. like pretty much everybody else who doesn't host podcasts...
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and the other thing is that they went and created a fake a G plus profile for the guy with uh, the fake picture. Clever. So if you go and Google the name... The Google Plus profile comes up like first because Google favors their own stuff, right? No, never, never, no. Of course. Uh, they also created a Gmail account in the victim's name <laughs> because you can always make just enough alterations so it looks like the right one, right? Um, then they call up GoDaddy support and be like, "Hey, I need to get—I've lost control over my domain. I need to get it back. Uh, you know, I have this excuse why I don't have access to the email address anymore." You know, it's like, oh, there's office politics going on. I don't want to get into it or something. Or, and then, you know, so GoDaddy's like, well, uh, we need the PIN number that you set. And they're like, well, I don't remember setting a PIN number. And, you know, if your account's old enough, maybe you don't actually have one or something. Right. And then they're like, well, uh, you know, what about the email address? And it's like, oh, well, I have my assistant register the domain for me. So Clever. they did it with their email and I don't have that right now or they don't work for me anymore. That would be something.
0: my go-to one too. That'd be my line. That'd totally be my line.
1: Uh, or also, so it's like, oh, uh, so we need the last four digits of the credit card you used. It's like, oh, well, my assistant would have used the credit card uh, ending in, you know, four, four, three, two, and use some number I just made up and it's like, oh, that's not the right one. So it's like, oh, okay. That's plausible, you know, more than one credit card or whatever. I don't know which one it was. Sure. Or maybe they use their own credit sure, card. Sure. Who knows? You know
0: what? Actually, honestly, I'm, I'm a bozo when it comes to credit cards. I just finally got it sorted out. So again, that would be my go-to line this is actually sounding plausible
1: yeah uh you know creating a sense of urgency and 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 you know no oh, please help me or whatever like, so you know when you're on the phone with them you're like i apologize both for not having all the information you want and for my daughter being yelling in the background i'm really trying to get this sorted out or whatever and then so support person on the other end just laughs and like, oh no it's not a problem whatever right uh you know and then uh It goes on like this, and they basically just weasel their way out of every verification step. And then, you know, uh, if the domain is registered to a business, uh, GoDaddy requires additional verification, right? If it's uh, registered in the name of a business or whatever, then they want official stuff on the company letterhead and so on. But since many people just make up a business... You know, and the whole point of, you know, I'm buying this domain to start my business, but, and the business is called this, but I've not actually registered that name with the government or anything. Right. It's usually one of the first things you do is kind of starts playing around with that, get your domain. Yeah. Or, you know, I've had this domain forever and I never actually got around to starting the company (laughs) or whatever. And so it's like, oh, well, you know, that business doesn't really exist. So I don't have all the documentation you're looking for, like, you know, a business registration or something like that. And, you know, depending on uh, what the verification is, you know, looking at, uh, I've not done the GoDaddy one, but other companies, if you just make up a letterhead with the company name on it, they'll accept that. You know, just send them a letter on, yeah. oh, this is the official letter I've from I've our company. I've literally done that. Letterhead. I've done that because yeah. clients have had, you know,
0: their their IT staff leaves and uh, they have nobody left there that knows how to manage the domain and nobody's technical. And so I've just gotten on the phone and called them up. It's okay, what do you need? Oh, you need a letterhead? And I just made the letterhead. Because I'm just yeah. a contractor, I don't have a letterhead. I a literally, yeah,
1: I just literally made one up in Word, made it look horrible so that it would look legitimate.
0: Yeah. Oh my God! Don't make it too nice, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like this is a standard Microsoft Word letterhead template with our company name and block letters and like some logo made out of squares or something. It's just horrible things like that. Uh, you know, basically, there's always loopholes for every step, and if you can. Manage to fit through every one of the loopholes, then you just take over the domain.
0: When you're properly motivated.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, in the end, the customer support representatives that you're talking to on the phone is there to help the customer. Right. right? That's their job. Yeah. It's usually rather difficult for them to get away with actually refusing to help you. And also, you know... Uh, they can't just turn you away because you don't have all the details. Because like, it's uh, pretty common that people suspicious. are not incompetent.
0: Incompetence is common.
1: Yes. Well, it's not just that. It's that, you know, if I don't have that email address anymore, hmm. what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Right? And, oh, well, then you fax us all this information and, and we do it or whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like, well, nobody has a fax machine anymore. <laughs> Seriously. Right? So, yeah. Also, uh, Goday has an automated system that sends a notification to you every time there's a change on your account. So it said, hey, we changed uh, changed your authorized email address over to this address. Or, oh, somebody changed your DNS settings and all this. But all these kind of happen after the fact. You get that email somewhere between like half an hour and, and eight hours after the change. And so in that time, your traffic's already been hijacked. Yeah.
0: Jeez, oh my gosh. So frustrating uh, and, and that are, if that happens. The
1: instructions are, if you didn't do this, call us. And then you have to try to verify yourself against all these steps or whatever right mm-hmm. I, uh, I guess I missed one of the, they talked about you know you have to prove your address or uh, give them your address and stuff yeah. it's like, well if I they're looking at something? the Whois record yeah oh, right. say against it all you're doing is reading the who is record to them and they're compared, oh that's exactly right right
0: yeah unless they have yeah. privacy
1: yeah in which case you're reading GoDaddy's address back to GoDaddy <laughs>
0: Oh, that looks like an accurate, that looks like a valid address to me, sir. Very good.
1: (laughs) Well, when you have the privacy thing, then GoDaddy's looking at the address they just didn't print, but it's not that hard to find people's addresses. Yeah, it's not. Uh, And, you know, so like uh, Network Solutions requires you actually uh, fax some stuff instead of just emailing it or whatever. And I think, uh, if you remember, uh, Network Solutions started that thing where it's like, oh, you have to pay us $1,500 a year. yes. And then in that case, every time there's a change, we'll actually call you and make sure. It's like their
0: white glove domain locking service or something. Yeah. Yeah. It was ridiculous. But But I guess if you're a big enough
1: brand. Honestly, you have the same problem with that. It's like, oh, well, I changed my phone number because I moved. mm -hmm. And uh, so I don't have access to that phone number for you to call me anymore. So how do I verify myself now? Oh, there must be some loophole for me to go through. And... You know, in the end, it all causes these problems. Indeed, Alan. Alan, like I said, when you're properly motivated,
0: you'll find those loopholes.
1: Yeah. And so uh, the reporter did a little bit of digging and found that, you know, almost every domain name registrar has this same, you know, send us the photo ID and, and, you know. It's kind of the standard. A utility bill to prove your address and so on. And they'll accept it. Because I've actually done that for uh, one of the domain registrars I had was a reseller and they went out of business. And so I had to deal with the company they were reselling for to re-get control of my domains. Uh, and yeah, it was like a bunch of them was easy. It was like, oh, here's I'll factor this information or whatever. And then some of them was it was a business, so I had to make up a fake letterhead. And one of them, because of what I was using the domain for, I registered with in the name of uh William Riker and the lived on Defiant Street or uh, uh, Enterprise Street or something like oh that. Oh my God, Alan, you're <laughs> such a geek. That's great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so that one was especially hard to get back, but I did manage to do it. Um, and, you know, jumping through all these hoops to do it. And uh, so, yeah, uh, in their research, they found that hover.com, uh, which is a fairly new registrar, but from the company that was one of the very first uh, registrars when Network Solutions was demonopolized. So, Hover is actually owned by Two Cows, which is a company that owns Teng. Uh It's one of the only registrars that doesn't allow photo ID as a form of verification. Oh. Specifically stating, quote, anyone could just whip something up in Photoshop, quote. <laughs> that's what they <I> said? <laughs> yes. Uh, because Two Cows has been on the internet for a very long yeah. time. They yeah. know how the internet works. They know about they trolls. understand computers. Yeah, that's that's great. So, yeah. Uh, in the, um, I guess I didn't really explain it, but in, in this... Uh, when they fa- uh, sent, uh, emailed GoDaddy the, uh, a scan of the ID, they had got somebody else's Indiana driver's license. Right? So the, the attacker guy just got some person he knew in Indiana to send a scan of his driver's license, then edited the information. And, you know, yeah. to match the fonts. But as long as you make all the fonts the same, they don't actually have to match what the driver's license necessarily looks like, right? Yeah. If, if you're working for GoDaddy in Arizona, you probably don't know what an Indiana driver's license even looks like per se.
0: So there's kind of an example of what they did there.
1: Yeah, and so, uh, you know, they just Photoshopped in a different picture and made it grainy and, and you know, all of a sudden they had this valid-looking driver's license.
0: Yeah.
1: Hmm. Um, that was the actual so it, one submitted uh, to GoDaddy, too. Well, Except for, I think, less blurred. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, they say... Um, GoDaddy issued a response saying, GoDaddy has stringent processes and a dedicated team in place uh, for verifying the identity of customers when a change of account slash email is requested. While our process and team are extremely effective in thwarting illegal requests, no system is 100% effective. Falsifying government-issued identification is a crime When consent, uh, even if consent is given. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> that we take very seriously and will report to law enforcement where appropriate.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, they're serious about it, I'm sure. I'm sure they... Yeah.
1: They'll probably be adjusting uh, their policies too, I bet. A little bit, yes. Because I think, you know, uh, at one point it's that, oh, they faxed us a driver's license. That must be legitimate rather than actually looking into it and being like, you know, hey, is this driver's license ID number even real? Mm -hmm. Or does the name... I don't know if you can interface with, like, the DMV to be like... uh, I know with credit cards when you're a business, you can call a bank yeah. and ask them yes or no questions. So you can be like, is the name on this card number blah? And they can say yes or no. Right. They don't give away any information. Yes, right. But yep. they can verify that the name on the card matches the card number. I don't know if you can do the same thing with DMV. Like, uh, So I have a driver's license with this number. Is the name on it Blah. Somebody probably can. I don't know how accessible that is. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) I I don't know how easy it is for GoDaddy to actually go from a driver's license to establishing whether that's actually the person or not.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I don't know either.
1: Uh, But it definitely seems like they just weren't doing that. Yeah. Well, Uh, that takes time. That entirely could be because it's literally not possible for them to do that because of government privacy rules or whatever. Well,
0: and they got a lot of customers you know, and uh, there's only so much time in the day.
1: I think honestly this this, uh, account reset thing doesn't happen all that often uh most people go through the right that one of the easier ways to get it back because you don't usually lose access to everything uh or you know at some point people just give up and be like well i didn't want that domain that badly anyway (laughs) Yeah. yeah oh well but yeah it seems like maybe for some of this stuff uh you know Losing control of the account if they're going to change the email address or something should involve something like well we're going to send an email to the original address being right, like, right. do you authorize this and if we don't get a response after seven days, then we'll maybe switch the email to the new one
0: mm-hmm.
1: to give the person with the original address a chance to say no you know that's not foolproof, but it's definitely something extra yeah although you're imposing the seven day waiting yeah, period
0: and customers hate that
1: yes but It might be a decent trade-off.
0: Yeah, I agree. Or maybe at least you could opt into it. That'd be nice, right? Check a box. You know, if I ever ever take an action like this, require additional authorization. Let me opt into it. I would do that. Uh, All right, any other thoughts on that one?
1: Ah, uh, know, let's put it
0: all right, well, then I'll tell you something I opt into. Freaking DigitalOcean sponsor of the TechNet program and DigitalOcean is awesome. They're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. You can get started in less than fifty five seconds and i've I've seen some pretty impressive numbers in my day, but i've I've actually even seen people tweet me like thirty six seconds twenty six seconds. It's
1: crazy. I, I think I did thirty five on mine.
0: That's nuts. Do you remember which data center you did it in?
1: You uh, New York?
0: oh yeah, yeah, yeah i got I got a I got a droplet. I got two droplets in New York. I got one in San Francisco. I don't have one in London anymore, but I did for a short period of time. I move them around. It's super easy to do it, too. Essentially, what I do is I template them. And then when I'm done with that machine and I want something else, I turn it off. And then when I'm ready to start my next project, I resume from the template. And I get started right where I left off. It's only $5 a month to get a rig with 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. And their interface, it's great. And this is one of the things that really, when I started trying out DigitalOcean before they even became a sponsor, uh, I, I saw this and I thought, whoa, this is something I can get behind. I like this a lot. And I think you will too. It's very intuitive. And it's just, it's all done on the web. It's all very responsive. So like, I've, I've actually done it from my phone. I've done it from my desktop. Uh, and they have an HTML5 console too, which is really great. So you get to watch that, that system completely boot up. Uh, and it's really nice because you can then replicate the functionality with their straightforward api a lot of good community apps are already doing that too so you don't even have to write one but you can you can snap it into your management infrastructure or just manage it from your desktop or a smartphone or from a script it's really cool, and they have a ton of great tutorials, including some good stuff on free BSD, because you can also create a free BSD droplet. So go over to DigitalOcean and that. bring our promo code. What was that?
1: <laughs> I've done that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's pretty cool, huh?
1: I, I'm, I'm using a, a DigitalOcean droplet in production currently.
0: Yeah, oh, nice. And you're happy with it? Yep. Yeah, It's very easy. Yeah, I have, I have several of them. And if you use the promo code SNAPOcean, one word, lowercase, you'll get a $10 credit on your account. And then you can try out that $5 rig for 2 months for free. So again, use our promo code snapocean. That's one word, it's lowercase. That supports the show, gets you a $10 credit, try out some of the stuff we've been talking about. Play with CoreOS, play with FreeBSD, play with own cloud, GitLab. Uh, all of that stuff is available and why not do it on some super fast hardware with a great connection that you can publicly work on. It's nothing like the real thing. And you can get it over at digitalocean.com and try it for 2 months for free when you use our promo code snapocean over to DigitalOcean, and a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Thanks, DigitalOcean. You guys rock. Hey, Alan, how about before we run into uh, the feedback segment, we uh, mentioned, because we didn't get a chance to do this last week, people can download episode 81 of BSD Now, Puffy in a Box. Puffy in a Box. Uh, Just posted a bit ago, and this would be a great time about midway through the TechSnap program to start the HD download. Any notes of interest on this one, Alan? Um... I suppose you guys talked a lot about AGBSDCon in there,
1: huh? We had a bit of a recap of AGBSDCon, but yeah. I'm sure that'll kind of just go on for weeks as we remember more and more of the great things. Yeah, yeah. And As we're more and more awake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, also, I think uh, next week is one of our interviews from AGBSDCon. It's a really good one. Um,
0: Puffy, let's see here, let's see, uh, OpenBSD and their line of commercial routers.
1: Oh, cool. Yes, Uh, so that's an interview with a developer from Calyptics, which is a company that makes uh, (laughs) small business routers uh, powered by OpenBSD. And we get to talk a bit about uh, how they use it and what they do, but also mostly just interviewing the developer and talking about how he first got into OpenBSD and I think uh, his story was actually that he was a Windows user and uh, <laughs> lost, all of it, lost all of his Pascal and, and basic code to a virus. Oh, no. And suddenly got very interested in computer security. Oh, no. And uh, after playing with Linux for a bit, heard about OpenBSD and found you know, that he really liked that and has uh, and been there ever since.
0: Very cool. Um, so uh, check it out. It is episode eighty one of the BSD Now program. I'll give a quick mention. We're trying to raise some money for Linux Fest Northwest. Alan will be there. We'll have a tech snap in the studio uh, that week, which we'll probably do a couple of them. Also, Chris Moore will be out at Linux Fest Northwest if all goes as planned. And so I'm sure there'll be a BSD Now. Is that have you guys ever done a full episode in person?
1: Uh, no, hmm. we've not. Uh, so, the, the Linux doing Fest that live will be quite interesting.
0: Yeah, the Linux Fest guys have also uh, offered a room for you guys to conduct interviews in, if you want a little quieter spot. Yeah, so perfect. Yeah, I'll follow up with them on that. And so we're trying to raise some funds because we're trying to get the whole crew out to Linux Fest Northwest, and we're going to be paying for some travel and some stay, and some stay for some of the crew. And you can help by going to teespring.com/linux and grabbing a Linux Action Show shirt, hoodie, long sleeve jacket, or a shirt, not a jacket. Um, or the kids' tea. And we have a couple different colors. I really love the blue this time. That
1: blue looks really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the we. have the logo is, says Linux on
0: it. <laughs> I know, right? I know. Well, I know. You know what, Alan, sometimes. I'm just but teasing. Th- you know, it's a Linux fest after all.
1: Uh, yes. The idea
0: being that people could grab this if they're going to the fest Ooh, and they could wear it.
1: The uh, blue hoodie. Yeah.
0: And also the maroon long sleeves. The red sleeve. actually looks
1: quite good yeah.
0: too. Yeah. And the long sleeves are really my favorite ones. Do you have the tea in maroon? I don't know. Let's see. Let me see. I think we have it in a different color. It's a, it's a slightly oh, brighter... A yeah, I don't really it's like that one pink. as much. Yeah. I think Alan, I think the long sleeve would look good on you. Yeah. yeah
1: that's I cool. like red.
0: So uh, you can grab one and you can uh, party with us in spirit, uh, or you can show up to the fest with one, and we'll also be live streaming that weekend. It's the last weekend of April. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, we invite... Well, on, really, I mean, we'll, be, we'll be doing TechSnap stuff too, so if you're going to make it out there, if you're a fan of the TechSnap program, you can go to LinuxFest Northwest. Y'all go right there. Linux... Fest. Boy, I got a lot of things with Linux in the in the URL, it turns out. I got a lot of things <laughs> yeah. in my... Uh, so it's a, it's April 25th and the 26th, and uh, you can register now, and uh, we'll all be there, <clears throat> rocking it. So uh, we'd love to see you, and if you could help us by going to teespring.com slash Linux. We haven't sold a lot of the shirts, so we're scaling back our plans a little bit, but we still really want to do as much as we possibly can, and you can help us get closer by going over there, or also just contributing to our patrons over at patreon.com slash today, which helps with this fest and future initiatives. All right, boy, that's a lot of stuff to talk about, but we've got a lot going on these days. It's pretty exciting, and we've got a lot of really good emails, too. So without any further ado, it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your feedback to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Or even better, which nobody did this week, starting to thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. But our first email is a good one. It's an update from longtime viewer Jed, who speaking of Linux Fest Northwest, is probably already excited at the idea of shooting me in the head with Nerf missiles. Uh, uh, Undoubtedly, he's already giggling to himself. And he writes in to give us an update from last week where we said, hey, give us some ideas for securing an Apache server. We rattled off a few uh, in episode 204. Jed says he recommends you configure uh, things like PHP to INI settings to have uh, open underscore baster, which will uh, defeat any open calls to unauthorized areas of the server.
1: uh, Open... Underscore baster basically kind of see through your app. It means everything you open has to be inside that directory. So it stops your app from opening files outside of there, Yeah, uh, which can be a good thing. You know, it keeps, uh, especially if, for example, uploaded content goes somewhere else, but then you can't reach it. Anyway, uh, open baster is fairly useful. Uh, and then he mentioned specifically to defeat any F calls, but um then he talks about the disable underscore functions yeah, list, yeah. Uh, which allows you from the web server to say, hey, PHP, don't allow these functions. One of them you can allow is don't allow FNP. <laughs> now, depending on what application you're going to be running, that might not work. But in general, yeah, you can allow, you know, can be like, hey, no connecting to remote sites at all. Uh, and that secures it down a lot. It keeps uh, people from injecting code that then pulls in an exploit from somewhere else. Um, the downside is it can also break the like automatic update feature of WordPress or mm, whatever. But mm, mm.
0: what do you think about this? Is use PHP five point six uh, where yes, all safe I mean, mode? Five point
1: six, they re-architected all of PHP basically and got rid of the idea of safe mode uh, and basically made it always be safe instead of a feature you could turn on that breaks most apps. Safe mode was never very good, and so the redesign is much better. Uh, and he mentions uh, Suhosen, which is quite good. It allows you to uh, restrict certain things, but it also adds some features that we're missing. Uh, you know, if your OS doesn't provide bcrypt, it adds it support for it into PHP for you. It's uh, quite useful.
0: Yeah, he also says, uh, why not uh, move uh, SSH to a higher number port, install fail-to-ban, uh, install aid and run it, clam AV and scan all the uploads that hit your server, and install Tiger Cron. It will alert you to open ports and insecure pathings.
1: And he also mentions disable any unused services, right? And uh, anything yep. on your server that you don't need, don't course. be running it, because if you don't use it, you won't remember to update it. And and it can be a vector, right? And that is true, the true. smallest attack surface you can get. Uh, get rid of everything you don't need.
0: Thank you, Jed. Good update, uh, good input. Dave writes in, uh, he says, Hey, how can I set up an SSH server in order to encrypt the computer internet traffic? I read one day on Lifehacker that I can use SSH to... Encrypt the web traffic from the web to SSH server, and after that, I can connect to the SSH server. So he wants to set up an SSH server for anonymous web surfing. I said, like I would have made it maybe from work or something like that.
1: Right. Uh, so basically, you can run the SSH client on your computer, and it'll connect to the SSH server that's actually going to relay your traffic. And the SSH client on your computer will listen on a port. Uh, so you said that, and then you tell your web browser to use localhost colon that port as a proxy.
0: Yeah, and like if and your client is uh, Windows, PuTTY makes it really easy to do this. Yep. And, you uh, can and just... so does
1: the command line SSH client. Yeah. Uh, yes, you can much. just set it and run it, and then you configure your Firefox or Telet- Internet Explorer yep. or whatever you want to use yep. uh, to go through it. And then, you know, you can point that at a digital ocean droplet for $5 and bounce all your traffic out. And you can
0: use that. You use the proxy setting in Firefox yeah. to do that. And then, yeah.
1: uh, or in Chrome or in IE. Yep.
0: And uh, and then so that way you don't even you don't even have to send all traffic through it if you don't want to and you could okay, have just, just one get, browser. We'll
1: this web browser session. Yeah, or just, uh, one yeah. thing to be careful of is uh, some things like plugins and so on might not use the proxy setting and will connect directly, mm. uh, which could leak your IP address.
0: Also, remember anything you do beyond. That SSH server is not encrypted, so right. don't do anything illegal on your home connection over it because it's going to be tracked back to your IP. It's just the data sent from the server to the client that is encrypted. And what your work yes, would so see you're at work. Between, is,
1: you, uh, between you and the digital ocean droplet is all this encrypted over yeah. SSH. Yeah. Then it's up to whatever your connection is. You know, if it happens to be HTTPS, then it is encrypted, but... Uh, if it's not, then it's not.
0: Uh, so uh, Count Zero wrote in to show us a uh, kind of a cool story. He's like doing he's doing like a mini roundup for us. He says, hey, Chris and Alan, maybe it's old news to you guys, but it's making some news uh, in my local outlet. Uh, it seems like it would be a pretty easy one to spot, but then I guess most ATM users are not all that vigilant. So check this out, Alan. I don't know if you – the picture really sells this one, but I'll describe it for our, our audio audience too. And thank you, Count Zero, for sending this in. It is a credit card skimmer, I think, here. Uh, let me – I'm loading it up right now. Oh, except for they want me to take a survey. Skip the survey. Are you serious? Wow. So y- there you go. There you go. So here it is. They have. They're using an iPod Nano on the inside. Is I guess maybe like the compute. I don't. I don't know what the iPod. Or oh, just the storage. Yeah. yeah it's got
1: some storage. In it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So there's the there's the card slot, with an iPod on the other end, and 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 then the uh, camera hole too. So they're getting the pin with that. Oh, because it has a camera, right? So they're using that to get the pin code. I bet.
1: Yep. Ah, right. So the iPad Nano is just sitting there as part of the front of the, uh, you know, they break out the plastic and stick yeah. this in, in one of the parts its that's it's supposed to be. And uh, it's basically an iPod that's activated and records uh, you typing on the keypad.
0: That is some dirty play. Thanks for sending that in, Count That's it.
1: Yeah. And it's got a fake card slot that goes on over top of the real card slot and skims your card. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, the things you can use iPods for, huh? Who knew? Yep. I, I did not know. All right. <laughs> I can't believe we made it this far into the feedback and haven't had, a, haven't had a ZFS question. Here we go. Danny writes in, I recently found your show and it's been a great resource not only for understanding issues encountered in securing today's computer systems, but also for an introduction to FreeBSD, ZFS, et cetera. I'm looking to build a home NAS, probably around eight terabytes, and I have been researching both FreeNAS and NAS for free. ZFS also piqued my interest. Uh, he says, uh, "Who doesn't like keeping your data safe, right?" I have the chance to pick up a High Point Rocket Raid 2720 SGL uh, controller along with some other parts like a motherboard, CPU, power supply etc., etc., etc. I plan to use and build it with. I'm trying to have a reasonable budget, but here's my question. If Hardware Raid is an option, as it is in this case, for a relatively small storage size, would you recommend still using ZFS, or would the Hardware Raid be a better option? I've looked at running ZFS on Hardware Raid, but the general consensus I got was, don't do it. Thanks for your help. You have a great work. I look forward to hearing from you. So what do you think? If it's a small amount of disks?
1: Uh, you always want ZFS. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um... In general, uh, oftentimes on the card, you can use the JBOD mode. Uh, and yeah. looking at the specs, every one of the cards uh, listed on this 72 se- uh, 2720 series yeah. has the option to just do jumble a bunch of discs. So if you can just pass each disc through individually, you get most of the advantages of ZFS that way. That'd uh, definitely be a- and Yeah. And then you can still use the card. Uh, skip the card if you can. Uh, but if you need it to provide enough ports for all the hard drives, then you can use it.
0: There you go. Great, straightforward answer. Brett writes in with our next ZFS question. He says, love TechSnap, and I have a question that I hope you might be able to address on the show. What is the recommended way to perform a backup of a MySQL database using ZFS snapshots? Now, I could probably just stop right there.
1: Uh, We could start, yeah. Um, A couple of things. Uh, You can... Obviously, you want the snapshots, but also you're going to want to enable the binary logging uh, as well. And so basically, what um, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. Uh, the way we do it at Scale Engine is we run a read-only slave off of the main server, and it has the uh, binary logging turned on, so it logs every query that changes the database. And then the slave pulls the file over and runs the queries and updates its copy. So then we can pause the uh, slave, make it dump all the SQL out as, you know, the, an SQL backup text file. So it gives us a consistent snapshot of the entire, every database at exactly the same second, uh, and then we can store those. Um, and we then, uh, we keep the the binary logs. So, you know, if we, if we do a dump once a day and we have the binary logs from, you know, the second after the dump uh, starts... Uh, up till the second mm-hmm. something went wrong, mm-hmm. we can then import that backup and then replay those logs to get caught back up. Uh, even on a single server, yeah, if you have snapshots, uh, you know, SQL, because it's transactional, will have the ability to recover. Uh, and, you know, ZFS uh, in itself being transactional and consistent uh, means that, you know, uh, your live system will never lose more than, like, three to five seconds of data is the most you could possibly lose on ZFS. Um, so, you know, if you do a snapshot, you're going to get a fairly consistent snapshot of everything that happened. Uh, you just might miss something that's being written right at the, in the window of while you're doing this, the snapshot. Uh, but it does, you know, between SQL and ZFS, you're already guaranteed to get something consistent.
0: And, and you know, this is... So the database is going to be driving his Kodi, you know, XBMC media center. So yeah. I would I would imagine that the right amounts there is not very high unless he's constantly yeah. adding media files or constantly playing and storing mm. metadata about the playback. But if it's just a you know a family household, I, I bet it's not. I bet there's not a huge time window where that snapshot's taking place that a bunch of stuff's happening. And if even if you miss a few things, it's just
1: mm. it's just your media center. Well, the, the, be, the best part is that between ZFS and Well, you're already guaranteed that what you're gonna get is consistent. Yeah, it just might be consistent as of the second or two ago that's not that bad for this for this setup no. really uh, so basically when you do a snapshot ZFS is going to flush any outstanding writes and you're going to get that consistent ah. snapshot anyway so okay there you go uh, so your best bet is do a snapshot of the data set that holds your database uh, and then you can back that up <laughs> remotely to something else either via replication or just by your regular backup means just do it from the snapshot and you'll be good uh, cool. If you want to be more consistent, you can actually do um, you know, uh, flush tables with read lock or something like that, then do your snapshot and then release the lock. And that'll make sure that um, uh, MySQL has flushed everything before you take the snapshot. Uh, so he has a link to an oracle, uh, an old Oracle blog where they actually yeah. kind of have a little script there where yeah. it basically logs into the uh, SQL server, does flush tables with read lock, um, then does the ZFS snapshot then unlocks the table, and that ensures that uh, MySQL has flushed everything out and won't do anything until you finish taking the snapshot, and then you unlock it right away.
0: And if you're listening and you want a link to that, you go just find uh, Brett's email, and then uh, it's linked in Brett's email. Yeah, it's in the show notes. In the show notes, yep. Cool. Well, hopefully that uh, helps you out, Brett. Good luck with that. Alan, this last one is ZFS-related, but it's not actually so much a question. I think Smash was just picturing your massive Nexus 6 and how it needs somehow to have some sort of ZFS thing on that Nexus 6, even if the Nexus 6 itself isn't running it. He says, uh, I thought this was a pretty neat and simple app to monitor your ZFS file systems over SSH. So it uses SSH from the phone to connect in and get stat information and then pulls it all into a display on your Android phone. Pretty cool. So it's actually like parsing
1: the ZPool status output. I think so. That's pretty nice. Yeah, I think I'm going to set just, this up. Yeah.
0: I think I will because, you know, let me just take a quick look at it. And, you know, here at the studio, we don't really check it that often. So if this gets me to check it from before I get a surprise. And it's, uh, it's Well, a, you're
1: using a free NAS for most users of your ZFS storage, aren't yeah. you? Not? Yeah, I could just go you to the You can actually work. have it email you when there's a problem. Oh, I suppose I could. If you actually configure it.
0: Yeah, I probably have.
1: Uh, and it's free. It's a free yes. app, so very That's cool. cool. Uh, I wonder if that app would be easier. One of the other things, oh, apparently it works with OpenSolaris, FreeBSD, and even NAS for free, and FreeNAS.
0: Yeah. Because I was doing too. <laughs> in and
1: uh, doing zpool status. Well, the best part is, uh, because of the way ZFS is designed, uh, a bunch of these commands don't require root to do, and the ones that do, usually you can do ZFS allow some user, like you know, a user named phone, uh, to do certain commands that normally require root, uh, so you can allow an unprivileged user to do, uh, for example, take a snapshot, right? So we were just talking about that MySQL backup script. It's like, well, taking a snapshot of the database, I'd like to put that in a script and I would like to not have to run that script as root. Yeah. Well, the ZFS uh, delegation framework, the ZFS allow, allows you to actually say, allow this user to take snapshots, but only of the database.
0: Boy, that really is and the mother file system. That is so amazing. Yes. That is great. Gosh. Well, there you go. If you have ZFS somewhere, take advantage of that app. Uh, mm-hmm. All right, Alan, well that brings us to the end of the feedback. Uh, we still have a few more emails, but we want to get more of them. So please, go over. You could start, hey, you know what? How about a thread in our brand new subreddit? Yeah, it's brand new. Just set it up uh, during the uh, feedback segment. You can find it. Go to techsnap.reddit.com and start a thread there. Or email the show directly. Just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, choose TechSnap from the drop-down, and then our robots will deliver it to the correct location, and we'll answer it in a future episode. All right, well with the emails all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup of stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show. We still want to go over them and give you some links to read even more on your own after the show. And you know what? A portion of these links, they came from this brand-new subreddit that I just set up a couple of seconds ago during the break over at techsnap.reddit.com. You should go check that subreddit out. Make the show even better. What the hell? techsnap.reddit.com. All right, Alan, our first story this week. I'll <laughs> just get a little punchy. Uh, I just I was wondering, like, will we hear anything more from Cisco when it, came, when, it when it was revealed that the NSA was intercepting Cisco packages <laughs> to, to install malware on them? Well, yep. now Cisco has responded, uh, and they're doing it by sending hardware to like illegitimate addresses using empty boxes like they're trying they're just they're just
1: trying to yeah, confuse a couple the of NSA. Different things. So yeah, they're using like dead drops where they'll just ship the package yeah. to some random place and yeah. then the customer will pick it up or you know the just like shipping to like random small company in random small town or whatever and then it actually eventually ends up at you know at t or, or somewhere. Doesn't uh, that seem... Basically, because the NSA was intercepting their shipments to their bigger customers to inject malware. Yeah. They're like, well, for some of our big customers, we'll just ship it to fake small businesses and, and dead drops and other things. And they said some of the places, uh, some of the big customers now will just reship a supply to a distributor and they'll just go and pick it up in person so that they know it wasn't so being intercepted. What's,
0: what's not, so, the, so I guess the subcontext to that is then these must be customers that are specifically going out of their way to place orders with Cisco and not have their information in the order somehow, right? Like, these must be customers that are specifically concerned if they're going to pick up stuff. These are
1: customers who have had their, their Cisco gear infected by the NSA and would like new Cisco gear to not be infected by the NSA. Doesn't this whole approach that Cisco's taking, though, like, just
0: reek of desperation? Yes, shipping it well, to they, like they've
1: already, they've already emailed like Barack Obama and said like, "Hey, you're killing us over here." Yeah, how are we supposed to sell our product anywhere if everybody assumes it's full of NSA spyware? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Pretty pathetic. It's pretty sad. All right, Alan. Uh, the next story is uh, is yours, I do believe, and uh, it is coming from a Mr. Brian Krebs.
1: Yeah, uh, actually, this one's yours, but oh, anyway. uh, oh. so there's a, there was a you know, dark web digital underground shop called evolution market. Uh, and, uh, you know, Krebs has got a snapshot there of what the yeah. uh, fraud section looked like. It's nice. They, it's nice. You know, uh, credit cards from different places, I'd buy from uh, that, you know, all the different things, you know, they had, was that like credit cards for sale for point zero one seven bitcoins and things like that. I
0: wonder if it's responsive.
1: Uh, well, that's a picture of the website because no, the website's I know. down no, now. No, but, but
0: it's a really good-looking uh, website for this.
1: Yeah. So they had all these, uh, you know, different things for sale. All of them illegal. Uh, well, <laughs> the site randomly went down the other day, uh, and uh, the merchants are now speculating that the founders of the site have made off with twelve million dollars worth of bitcoins. Joy. That's the story I. At some point, you're just like, you know, the risk of getting hunted down is too high yeah why don't you just take all this money and disappear yeah of course right <laughs> of course that's what you're gonna that's your output that's your but also just the fact that people selling stolen credit cards get robbed yeah <laughs> you know that's, that's the irony I mean. of the people that you know hack into things and steal things yeah getting ripped off getting ripped off yeah people are going out of the way to rip people off getting ripped off by the places they were using to sell that information to people yeah So I stole all these credit cards and I'm trying to sell them and I got robbed. (laughs) It's like, well, yeah, kind of should have known better. All right. So
0: uh, guess what? Another Cisco story. Cisco freaks out. (laughs)
1: Uh, So it it starts an epic
0: OpenSSL bug uh, spat.
1: Well, uh, yeah. So (laughs) this one in in particular. So uh, when OpenSSL released their security advisory in January, they said the freak SSL uh, vulnerability with the the um, export encryption downgrade stuff that yep. we talked about yep. wasn't very high probability of being exploited because not that many people use the old export stuff. And you were kind of like... Uh, this week revised yeah. that high uh, precedence yeah. because it turns out a lot of people still do. Yeah, And Cisco was one of them. Every one of their appliances <laughs> was still accepting the old export cipher stuff. Oh, right? that, okay, now that's where or, it goes. A Cisco's like, oh all about backwards compatibility. We don't ever want to be like, oh, our our device can't talk to your old thing, right? Right. right. Uh, So they have a huge list on their website of the things that are vulnerable and they're slowly working on patches and they're giving the patches away for free. Uh, You know, normally Cisco, some Cisco updates require you to be, have an active subscription and if you don't, you have to pay from the time you cancel your subscription, pay like back pay, since you cancel your subscription up till today, as if you had paid all along yep. in order to get the patch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for these SSL patches, they are uh, giving them away for free.
0: Good guy, Facebook or uh, Cisco.
1: Uh, so yeah, uh, we haven't really mentioned it yet. It's coming up shortly. Is the announcement about the OpenSSL stuff? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it kind of got buried in the uh, yeah, the yeah. box.
0: Uh, all right. So, uh, but first, uh, something kind of neat. Every now and then, I like to see what uh, Facebook's doing in their in their server data center. Because uh, they've done some pretty innovative stuff there, and uh, they've kind of been well thinking outside the box. So they've you, they've introduced this Yosemite open server chassis. They've been working with Intel, and as part of the Open Compute Project, it's uh, you know Facebook's effort uh, with this started off in 2011, and we've ta- we've covered it several times. Uh, yeah,
1: the problem with one of their, their first renditions of servers is that we were slightly too wide to fit yes. in a standard rack because so t- they used wider racks.
0: So take a look okay. at this. So Facebook has talked about several projects that they've had, different iterations of this. Their latest chassis is named Yosemite. It holds four system-on-a-chip processor cars and provides the flexibility and power efficiency for their data centers. Uh, and they're going to contribute the design to, the, um, to their open compute project so you can adopt and build upon it. Each server node holds a single system-on-a-chip with a 65-watt thermal design multiple memory channels, and at least one solid-state drive. Uh, They also have local management controllers, so you can, you know, obviously control them. And uh, then this Yosemite system, the really powerful system, you can get four system-on-a-chip server modules, 400 watts of total power, or about 90 watts for each module. And uh, for those of you not watching the video version, they're they're pretty narrow. They, actually, they look about the size of uh, the power supplies for old HP servers. They're really
1: pretty... Speaking of this, yeah. at Asia AsiaBSDCon, there was a company showing off similar sized modules. They kind of look like small video cards. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was in a uh, system on a chip of a, an Atom C2720 or something. That's like one step slightly slower than what the one you get in the FreeNez Mini. Uh, but it's got that. It's got an onboard mSATA and then four memory, uh, like laptop style sized chips of RAM. So you got 32 gigs of RAM the 8 core processor and uh i think mean, it was 120 gig uh m ssd uh plus full bmc and everything on each of these little cards nice and in a 2u chassis oh yeah they managed to fit 46 of them what yes. i thought you were going to say they fit all in a 2u chassis <laughs> no no they fit 46 <laughs> separate atom <laughs> powered computers like this thing they're showing here that has four yeah if it 46 of them, and each one uses like 30 watts or something. That's so awesome. Uh, and you, could, you can replace in the front row, you can replace each module with uh, one that fits um, the two-and-a-half-inch uh, hard drives. Yeah. So more SSDs or something. Yeah. Um, also, each one has a 2.5 gigabit per second NIC. Oh. That connects into the backplane, and the server itself has four 40 gigabit NICs, that you then so that you can connect all forty-six boxes at high speed to your to your switch, and then they're like, if you filled a rack with these, you get like s- just less than six thousand processors or something like that.
0: Huh. Wow, the Atom processors are really stepping up to a whole new level now.
1: Yeah. Uh so yeah, with this thing, if you if you filled a rack with two U of these of these two U servers with forty-six nodes each, you would have just less than uh, 6,000 processors. And they had a comparison comparing that to building, uh, regular systems into you systems where you fit, I think like four, yeah. uh, Xeon E fives or whatever. Yeah. Or maybe they were comparing to E threes. I forget. Uh, but I they found you. that while the atoms are slightly slower, the fact that you can fit so many more of yeah. them means that if your workload is a type where it can benefit from that many cores, uh, you'll actually end up saving power. Cause it's like, uh, the, the, the atoms are like 30% slower but use 50% less power. So, in the long run, you're saving power.
0: Hmm. Interesting stuff, Alan. I would, uh, I would love to see something like that. That sounds mm-hmm. like a really cool demo.
1: Uh, I have like a picture, but never. No, uh, Chris took a bunch of good pictures. I'll have to get his pictures.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and I oh, and I guess I they're have probably have running something. BSD, huh? Uh, they have it running for BSD 10.1. Yeah. Cool.
0: Cool.
1: Uh there will be a presentation about it at uh meet Bia- or sorry uh BSDcan.
0: Okay.
1: It's on the schedule. The schedule for BSDcan uh came out the other day as well.
0: Oh, well, I'll take a look.
1: Um our, so our next one is a oh, pic- looking yep. at page 2 of this Facebook thing. The other thing they have is OpenBMC, an open uh baseboard uh management, management controller.
0: controller Yeah.
1: Now that could be very interesting because currently all the BMC stuff is proprietary and oh, yeah. garbage. Oh,
0: th- it's their own implementation I mean, of it.
1: Yeah, oh, Facebook has released OpenBMC, which is their that thing, could be a and big it's deal. open. And uh, huh, yeah. that that could be a good thing.
0: Yeah, sure could. Sure
1: could. I, w- I would definitely like to have a very solid BMC thing that wasn't crap. Yeah, and uh, be able to replace this all my. Uh, it's probably too much to ask to be able to replace all the ones on my existing servers. Maybe in the but future, ha- my future servers yeah. have an open BMC yeah. that I could update or customize yeah. or just know was not totally insecure? Totally. Yeah. Or could know wasn't running an outdated version of DropBear?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, next story in the roundup is a picture from Mr. Krebs.
1: Did you tweet yes. this one? Yes, he tweeted this one. What is
0: this, Alan? I can't quite read
1: it. Uh, So uh, Hilton Honors, which uh, if you remember, that's the hotel reward program. Yeah, yeah. And remember they were having that problem where people would uh, steal the accounts and then like stay in hotel rooms for free using up all your points? Yes. Uh, Well, Hilton Honors has launched uh, a campaign to get everybody to change their password, possibly just to help prevent this. Yeah. Uh, But also I think they've upped their um, uh, password complexity requirements. So anyway, if you go into your Hilton Honors account and reset your password before April 1st, they will give you 1000 free Hilton Honors points. I don't know if that's a lot of points or a few points, but sounds it's 3 like points a, so- just for going
0: Sounds to, a 1000 sounds
1: it, like a lot to me. But I don't know. Well, maybe a candy bar is 2,000
0: points or something for all I know. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I don't know how many points you get for, you know, it's staying. It's a good number,
0: though. It's a good, solid number.
1: Yes. Uh, free stuff for resetting your password seems like, uh, or for changing your password every so often. It seems like uh, lots of sites and games could do that. They're like, hey, don't want to get your game account hacked? Right. If you reset your password yes. every six months, yes. we will give you yeah. free Something. Yeah. Even if it's only minor, you know, people yeah, will do it. cartel
0: <laughs> coins or Zen points or whatever. Exactly. Uh, all right, I, I'm going to hook up uh, the audience, the, the ladies and gentlemen in the audience who prefer to maybe browse the naughtier side of the web and they use Apple's Safari web browser. Uh, you might want to stop. Uh, it looks like if you can get access to the SQLite database uh, uh, that Safari holds in your library Safari uh, folder, it's, it's kind of silly. It's not like a history one so much. It's like the favicon database.
1: Uh, yeah, and, yeah so, so like in Firefox you have the history and the awesome part right. and a bunch of stuff right. and when you engage private mode it specifically skips all of those but it right. seems that they, uh, in Safari they forgot to say hey, well, don't save the favorite yeah, cards
0: So it's interesting because the way Safari h- happens to do it is when you start Safari in private mode it essentially just creates an entirely new user configuration directory that's a totally fresh config and, so, and then when you close that private window it destroys that config but right. this outside of it for the favicons
1: remains. They're like, hey, why don't we just have one big database for yeah. all the users so we don't download the same icon many times? Yeah,
0: yeah. So there Except,
1: you go. yeah. you got to be careful. Uh, Information leakage. Uh, Chris's uh,
0: secondary pro tip is if you're going to get busted uh, looking at porn, then you probably have another conversation you need to have. Uh, and don't use Safari. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just don't use Safari. I don't care what else. Uh, don't you, oh, or Internet Explorer. Just do me a solid. Don't do that. So uh, you teased it a little bit ago, Alan. We do have some OpenSSL
1: security advisory stuff to dig into. You want to start? Uh, yes. Yeah, so they had their big advisory. Um, the kind of interesting thing is that the advisory is not quite as big as they were. You know, they're like, "Oh, there's a big advisory coming out this Thursday." Yeah. And then you know, they're, they're here. We are on Thursday, and it's not so big. They, they upgraded the export RSA one to severity high. Okay. And they had you know uh, a a. Uh, Denial of service one where basically you can crash open SSL. So if you do it to somebody's web server, you can keep crashing it until it stays down doing a denial of service. So that one is marked high. And then they have like moderate, 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 low, low, low. And that's it. There's no like extremes like there were with Heartbleed. So they're still not
0: quite as amped up about it then.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, one of the other interesting ones is one of the low ones, they just specifically say here, um, you know, that they don't think it's very common or it wouldn't happen very often. Um, And, you know, it's like, well, that's what you said about the freak one. And then the next two months later, you upgraded it to high because it turns out you were wrong. So just because they mark it low doesn't mean we shouldn't fix it. I guess maybe they're Uh. trying to
0: resist marking anything that has to do with OpenSSL at at scale as, as severe.
1: Well, you know, if it actually is severe... Yeah, they, I, I, you know, agree. Uh, I
0: agree.
1: Yeah. yeah. If basically, if what can happen is bad, even if it's not very likely to happen, it seems like that needs to be a high. Right, the scale of the bad that could happen is... Yeah, important. rather than the scale of likelihood it could happen because as much as we think, you know, uh, uh, many months ago, you remember we talked about the um, uh, rose smashing or whatever, the yes. way where if you... Uh, read and write from memory a bunch of times you can cause a a bit to be flipped on purpose. And we talked about, you know, everybody says, oh, well, we don't think it will be really practical to exploit that. Well, last week, somebody found a way to reliably exploit it and do interesting things with it. So it's like, oh, turns out we're not very good at guessing what kind of thing could be exploited. Once we have the details, anything could be exploited. Uh, So, you know, at that point, we have to consider that when we're reading these advisories and yeah. more importantly they should consider it when they're writing them that just because something is uh... and that's kind of uh, you know the CVS scores kind of have that right they have how bad it is how easy it's to exploit how likely it's to be exploited and using those three scores kind of separates out from gives you a better idea of how bad it is yeah. is the clear one right. number right. how likely is a different number yes. and then you can decide well being an outfit that's definitely going to be under attack, we have to consider that just because it's unlikely doesn't mean it's not going to happen. If it's going to happen to someone, it's probably going to be us. Yeah. So, hey, <laughs> high severity means install the patch. So I do I do prefer that that approach. And also, I think, uh, you know, everybody at this point should have a, an easy mechanism for updating their open SSL. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: yeah.
1: So just uh, talking about the impact of a couple of them, uh, 0209, uh, a malformed elliptic curve private key file can cause server daemons using OpenSSL to crash, resulting in a denial of service. Uh, 0286, a remote attacker who is able to send a specially crafted certificate may be able to crash an OpenSSL server or client. Uh, 0287, an attacker who can cause invalid writes with applications that parse structures uh, containing the choice or any defined by components. Uh, and reuse those structures may be able to cause them to crash. Uh, such reuse is believed to be rare. OpenSSL clients and servers are not affected. Uh, but the you know uh, an application that uses the library could be affected. Mm-hmm. Um, 0288. An attacker may be able to crash applications that uh, create a new certificate request with a subject name the same as an existing specifically crafted uh, certificate. Uh, you say, this usage is rare in practice. Although, from my reading of that, that means that um, things like that Superfish and uh, Relay Day where you're doing the certificate splicing, you know, in that case, you're going to get this certificate from a website and then you're going to create a certificate request for the same subject name and create a new certificate for it, uh, then to give to the user to do the interception thing. So, I don't think it's actually that rare in practice. Mm. So, that means that if you visit uh, the website that's that's got this malicious certificate via a corporate proxy that does this interception thing, it could exploit the corporate proxy and allow them to intercept all traffic. If you could exploit that appliance, that would give you basically a perfect man in the middle position for the entire business. That's having all of its traffic right up to this <laughs> intercept appliance. Right. Uh, yes.
0: <laughs>
1: so that's a specific one where, you know, if you have a Cisco appliance that does that, you're going to want that patch from Cisco. Um, uh, 0289, an attacker may be able to crash uh, applications that verify PKCS number 7 certificates, uh, decrypt PKCS number 7 data, or otherwise parse PKCS number 7 structures uh, that are uh, specifically crafted in the certificate. Um 0293, a malicious client can trigger an open SSL underscore assert in servers that both support SSL v2 and enable the export cipher suites by sending a specially crafted SSL v2 client master key message resulting in a denial of service. Although hopefully everybody has disabled support for SSL v2 and the export cipher suites and that one won't apply. But we know lots of people haven't. So, you know, disable SSL v2 and maybe even v3 and definitely disable the export cipher suites. Yeah. Uh, and they, they also mentioned that uh, the two of the issues, uh, 0204 and 0292, were already addressed in previous security updates, uh, but were just upgraded in this advisory.
0: Hmm. You know, it's just almost uh, like uh, we, we need like a we almost need like an open, we need like a SSL segment bump, just like a bum 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 SSL update. What do you think? Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The other interesting thing is uh, now that. Um, the CVE numbers are given out in batches, like they are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You notice that all the SSL ones were kind of in a row, and we, we noticed that with the Adobe ones. Yeah. And it seems like they've kind of like allocated a chunk for Adobe and yeah. a chunk for SSL, yeah. and then yeah. get another chunk later or something. Yeah. Well, there's there's been a couple of gaps in those chunks. Yes. Meaning that there's some exploit they know about and are yeah. working on a fix for, but haven't released yet.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree.
1: Or maybe it's one that turned out not to be, so they never issued it, but. You know, some of these numbers seem to be reserved for things that we haven't heard about yet. Hmm. Uh, also known as so future stories on TechSnap. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see if the next SSL update points to a CBE number that's lower than the highest number we've seen so far. And you know, that kind of suggests that there was uh, stuff running around. Uh, from
0: the uh, from the Department of Water is Wet, uh, UK spies <laughs> claim to have broad powers to hack the world. Uh, Of course, this is the GCHQ, and they have a statement where they've said a few things that they've essentially acknowledged. Now, they can't affirm or deny specific policies, they say, uh, and for what areas, but they say operations vary in complexity, uh, and there's different scales. More complex operations involve exploiting vulnerabilities in software in order to gain control of devices or networks, remotely extract information, monitor the user or the device, or take control of a device network. They say these types of operations can be carried out illegally by hackers or criminals in limited or carefully controlled circumstances. And for legitimate purposes, these types of operations may also be carried out lawfully by certain public authorities like the GCHQ.
1: So, yeah, the GCHQ is saying we're legally allowed to hack whoever we want. Uh, this is uh, related to the GCHQ is being sued by yeah. five ISPs yeah. from uh, yeah. like England, Germany, and a couple other places. Good. Good. And so uh, their defense is that we're legally allowed to hack whoever we want. It's like, well, you're in England and maybe the English government legally allows you to hack whoever you want, but in Germany, that's not allowed. <laughs> or only the German security service is allowed to hack whoever they want in Germany, right? And it comes down to uh, all the craziness.
0: Now, this next story, sounds like one of these headlines that makes the audience lose sleep at night. Persistent BIOS rootkit implant is to debut at CanSec west which i assume is like a conference yes Uh, it's
1: uh a conference in the on the west coast canada uh, that sounds like a one, It's it? a security conference.
0: Huh. And they say it's a persistent... Bio- what do you think, Alan? What do you think?
1: Uh, so they say an attacker with existing remote access to a compromised computer, so I don't have to actually physically be at the computer, but if I've somehow compromised your computer so yeah. I can log into it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, can use the implant to turn down existing protections in place to prevent us from reflashing the firmware. So uh, especially newer stuff has some protections in place so that you can't just reflash the firmware with a virus. Um but this exploit has found a way around most of those. Hmm. And this allows them to then implant and execute their uh, malware in the firmware. So even if you reformat the server, the malware is still there. They say, the devious part of the exploit is that researchers have found a way to insert their agent into the system management mode, uh, which is used by firmware and runs separately from the operating system, but is actually running while your system is running. Right? It's not just... Uh, is compared to the old... Uh, way we had computers with the BIOS that only have only ran until the OS started. With system management mode in like the EF, EF, uh, UEFI type BIOS there's a system management mode that's running all the time. Uh, and it has access to memory. Uh, so this puts supposedly secure and privacy focused operating systems like Tails in the line of fire from this right. thing. Get, so yeah, because Life
0: City is not going to be any good if it's in the BIOS.
1: Well, well, yeah, so the, the malware is running in system management mode, so it's running beside the operating system and has access to all the RAM. They say uh, The researchers say their em- uh, implant is able to scrape the secret uh, PGP key used uh, by Tails for encrypted communications. Mm. Uh, it can also steal passwords and, in- and encrypted communications. They say the implant survives OS reinstallation and even survives Tails' uh, built-in protection, including the ability of wiping RAM. Wow. Uh, so like when you shut down your tails it can it can overwrite all the ram or whatever, but um, you know, if you read it before it overwrote yeah. it then it's fine. Or if you're reading it as it's, as it's being used exactly. by the OS, yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. this would allow the malware to basically steal stuff out of memory all the time. It kind of reminds me of the one they had uh, the idea of running the keylogger on your video card and using like the 4 gigs of ram on your video card as right. storage for the keylogger and uh, there's another one with the network card. Where because because the video card and the network card both have access to DMA or direct memory access, uh, they could be reading your keyboard input as you're typing it, and then the network card could obviously just fire it off over the network. Yep. Uh, to somebody.
0: Yep. Or just log it. <laughs> yep. That's crazy. That's not the kind of that's not the kind of vulnerability. That's like bad USB. I don't I don't like those ones. I don't yeah. like those ones. Uh, So, just as a follow up to the Target story that we followed since, well, the week it broke, Target agrees to pay $10 million to data breach victims. Uh, This is sort of their settlement they're coming to. Investigators believe the thieves captured, remember, all that information from uh, 1,700 Target stores? Well, uh, also, Target's laying off 13% of their workforce, which is a little unfortunate. But 15 lawsuits. all, All Targets in Canada have closed. 15 lawsuits were filed by the end of 2013 seeking millions of dollars in damages. So the proposed settlement, uh, which has to be approved by the federal district court judge, creates a settlement account that could pay individual victims up to $10,000 in damages,
1: according to court docs. What do you think, Alan? So I guess they're only, I was going to say, well, $10 million divided by all the people who have their credit card have to be replaced because of it would probably work up to less than a dollar a person. But if they're only getting the people who actually got, uh, owned, right. I guess, the right. bigger question is how do you prove that it was Target? That was the source, especially with so many other leaks happening around the same time. Yeah. Uh, But But you know what?
0: I bet everybody gets free experience, so that's a win.
1: Yeah, but I think in the end, uh, $10 million doesn't seem like very much.
0: And uh, rounding us out is one more from Mr. Krebs about a convicted tax fraudster.
1: Yes. So, you know, we talked about the uh, QuickBooks and the the tax fraud stuff. Uh, So there was this... uh, bad guy named Lance Ely, uh, who is a Ohio man who uh, was found guilty of filing phony tax refund requests for more than 150 people. Uh, he stole their, uh, he got their identities from, uh, if you remember, superget.info. Yeah. That service ran by uh, a Vietnamese guy who was buying the data from Experian. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It selling? Yes. Uh, well, when they, <laughs> so the the secret service managed to convince him to come to Guam for something. Uh, for some big deal or something, and then arrested him and brought him back to the States. And uh, using that and the information they got from him, they managed to arrest a bunch of the people who had bought the stolen IDs. One of them was this guy. Um, and...
0: Uh,
1: hmm. So uh, they arrested this guy and charged him. Uh, and he was under house arrest, and he managed to, I don't know, break his uh, tracking bracelet and get away. <laughs> uh, and even... Um, Uh, You can see the Twitter picture he posted uh, while on the run with the Roadrunner thing and be like, can't catch me? Um, Classy. And he also, he had fired his attorney and was randomly filing uh, proceed legal arguments and responses uh, to the prosecutors while on the run. So it's interesting to read uh, he was saying uh, that the judge was unfair and he should get a retrial and stuff while he's on the run. Well, Somebody's got to be an advocate for the man. Uh, And then investigators close to the case say Eli continued filing false tax return requests while on the run from the law. But instead of turning to an underground identity theft service, as he did previously, investigators say Eli appeared to have paid numerous inmates serving time in Ohio prisons for permission to file tax refund requests Uh, on their behalf uh with the IRS, topping up the inmates' commissary funds to the tune of $100 per filing while pocketing the rest of the fraudulent refunds. Uh So he's like, oh, I, I know how to do this fraud thing, so I'll give you $100 if I can use your identity, so give me all that, you know, the information I need to file and the They're IRS. like, well, I'm
0: sitting here in prison. What do I care? I'll just yeah, claim I, I was a victim. I, well, yeah. I'll just claim I was a victim. Yeah, meanwhile, I can exactly. yeah. Interesting. Dirty, dirty world.
1: Any other thoughts on that one? Uh, no, I just thought it was... Uh, <laughs> oh, the important thing is that the uh, Secret Service uh, did a raid and caught him, so he's back in prison.
0: And that brings us
1: triumphantly to the end
0: of episode 206 of the TechSnap yes. program. Now TechSnap's live on Thursdays. Just go over to jblive.tv. We start at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is is 3 4 uh,
1: What time do we start? 4 p.m. Eastern, which is 2000 UTC.
0: Yes. Um and now starting next week with all the daylight savings shenanigans is all done,
1: right? We're all we're all yeah. out of that. So next week the rest of Europe will yep. switch. Yeah. Which be so nice cuz the show will the show will stay at Twenty hundred UTC. Because yeah. we changed before. Yep. So European people have to remember that your time's going to change, but the UTC sign will stay the same. It's 20 hundred UTC. And, and you know what? You just need to convert that to your local
0: time zone. I've noticed their absence. It's been noticeable. I've missed them. Yes. So it'll be nice to have them back. And you can so it should be a great live show next week and you can join us yeah. too over at JBLive.tv. We also have JBLive.info, which is the audio only stream if you want to grab that. And also, don't forget, we want your feedback. Go over to JupiterBroadcasting.com, click that contact link, and send us in some feedback, or make the show even better and supply some uh, some content or engage with the community over at techsnap.reddit.com. All right, Alan, well, I hope you get some rest, and uh, it's good to have you back. And uh, of course, uh, I'll see you right back here next week. And uh, I would also encourage all of you, if you want to catch the show every single week, grab one of our RSS feeds. You just Then get the show automatically after we put it out uh, Thursday evenings on the uh, West Coast. All right, everybody. Well, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week.